0: Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittiman. This is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. Such a special show today. Holy cow. (laughs) This was a really good one. Uh, Deirdre Keane is here on the show. What a remarkable person Deirdre is. And we touch on so many things in her life and her profession, her background, her running, and what she's going to be doing this year. It's just all, I mean, I don't want to spoil it. so I'm going to give everything away in the introduction, obviously, but my goodness, this one is chock full of everything. Um, Deirdre is an ICU nurse in the pediatric wing of Sloan Kettering in New York City, dealing with primarily kids with cancer. Yeah, so that is an incredibly incredibly difficult job, but you didn't need me to tell you that. With that said, balancing that, she is doing some remarkable things on the running front, and all of this ties back to things that happened in her childhood that had a huge impact on her. So, with all that being said, let's get into it with Deirdre Keane. All right, Deirdre Keane, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Matt, how are you?
0: I am so excited to chat with you. You, you are just like energy personified looking at the things that you do in your life and have done i'm like i was a little intimidated coming to this conversation like this woman has accomplished so much It's, it's insane
1: well thank you you're very kind you can do anything when you forego sleep
0: there you go there it is podcast is over moral of the story we got we got there pretty quickly in this one well i'm excited to chat with you um Obviously, in the intro, I described some of the stuff that you are doing and some of the things you're up to, not only uh the amazing things you have done in in the past, but also things you're gonna be doing in the upcoming, you know, in your in your near-term future. My God, this is this is all really exciting stuff. With that said, while people listening to the show understand marathons and all of that stuff, we don't all understand maybe what your day job, dear you know, basically your day job is, which um, I'm assuming is much more than just that for you. So would you mind describing what your profession is before we get started.
1: Yeah, Matt. Um, So I am a pediatric ICU nurse practitioner. I work at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, which is an oncology hospital in Upper East Side in Manhattan. And um, basically my specialization is that I work with children who are acutely ill, usually from complications from their cancer. So I work 12 hour shifts. Um, I work three to five days or nights a week, Holidays, weekends, hospital obviously never closes, and I've been doing that for five years. Uh, Prior to that, I was a pediatric ICU nurse, and I am currently finishing my MBA from NYU.
0: Here you go. Now, what does acutely ill mean?
1: So, acutely ill means that a patient's status is deteriorating to the point that we are concerned that it's life or death. Um, Intensive care is probably what people usually associate when they hear ICU. So they come to the ICU for monitoring purposes and for interventions that they can't get on a regular floor. Uh, We give medications for blood pressures. We intubate ventilators. um, That sort of jazz.
0: And you mentioned the location of the hospital uh, for people who are unaware, uh, and I'm not an expert by any means, but I am familiar with Sloan Kettering and it's a internationally known hospital. Do you work with patients from all over? Or how, do, how do people get into Sloan Kettering? It seems like it's kind of like the, you know, not, not people, certainly people don't want to be there, but if they ha- are super sick, it might be the, the place to go. So what, what's the process where you would even see a patient?
1: Um, it is like the mecca for cancer treatment. Uh, it's like the second best cancer hospital in the U.S. Obviously, I'm very proud to work there. However, we do get patients from all over the world because we are involved in a lot of clinical trials, um, phase one to three. So we will see patients from the UAE, from South Africa, um, more so before the pandemic, but we're starting to see more of our international clients again. And it's incredible. Like we have a surgeon who is so phenomenal at what he does. He will go in and operate on patients that most, the other surgeons have said is inoperable and he will get all the tumor. And it's just incredible to work with that much talent and see those many positive outcomes.
0: And that obviously means that you're working with patients and families from a variety of different backgrounds, different languages, different cultures. It must just be just not not only on the medical side, but just on the cultural side. It must just be a um, a tour de force of experiences.
1: Yeah, it's um, you definitely learn culture of sensitivity because you have to be so aware that everyone is very different, has very different needs during the most difficult time of their life. Um, It's one thing for someone like you and I to get sick. That's very stressful. But when your child is sick, that is the worst thing that a person can possibly go through because there's this innocent being that you love more than life itself and there's nothing you can do. Um, But I'm very fortunate that Sloan Kettering has all these wonderful resources. So we always have interpreters at the bedside and the interpreters we utilize not only for translation, but also for cultural tidbits. Like, do I make eye contact? Um, Being a female, how involved should I be while still making sure that I'm doing my job and doing the best for this patient? And then you learn how to navigate um, each scenario as it arises.
0: Yeah. I mean, so this is obviously a very important job. Also one that it's incredibly difficult on so many levels. So when you were choosing you know, your potential career path and, and things of that nature, what brought you to not only Sloan-Kettering in this department within Sloan-Kettering, but just this whole process, uh, generally speaking?
1: So when I was a child, my father had cancer. Um, he developed melanoma skin cancer when I was 10, which uh, usually has a very high remission rate. However, in his circumstance, I uh, wasn't caught in time. So he passed away when I was 13. Um, and that losing a parent can be obviously very impactful and it kind of changes who you are and changes your life course. And from that experience, I knew I wanted to go into medicine, um, particularly oncology. When I was younger, I did want to be a doctor, but um, financially, medical school wasn't possible. So I went the nursing route. And the wonderful thing about being a nurse is that there's so many other paths you can take afterwards. So after working um, as a nurse, I actually did not necessarily want to go into pediatrics. Um, Looking for my first job out of college, I was being interviewed at different institutions. And every time in HR, they're like, you would be so wonderful with children. And I remember thinking, I do not like children. (laughs) (laughs) 22-year-old <laughs> me was like, I want to be with adults. Oh, my gosh. But um, beggars can't be choosers. So at that time, it was first year out of college. I ended up working with kids. and I loved it. I just now I'm in the thought process of why would I ever work with adults when I could work with children who are so resilient. They complain less. They're so cute. And they're so innocent. Um, you just want to do right by them. So I did critical care in pediatrics as a nurse for a few years, but I always knew I wanted to do oncology. So I went back to Columbia to get my master's and doctorate, become a nurse practitioner. And then I found the most perfect job at Sloan Kettering in their pediatric ICU.
0: What do you think these people who were interviewing saw in you that you didn't quite see or something they had intimated into your character or whatever that they thought this would be a good fit where maybe you weren't you know, seeing eye to eye with them originally?
1: Maybe she's childlike. No, <laughs> I I really don't know what they saw because before that I had no interactions with children. I remember swaddling my first infant and being like, "How does this work?" As a twenty-two year old, but you learn, and they probably saw something in me that I didn't even know was there just yet.
0: Well, there you go. All right, so let's let's talk about your dad real quick. Obviously, I you know that's a that's a tragic story, and, and I'm sorry to hear that. Um, with that said, you shared you've shared in the past on other you know in other media or you know, in your own personal writings as well about um, kind of what transpired before your dad passed um, from a running perspective. And now you, we've talked about how you know, a little bit about how he is his uh, his life has influenced you as a professional. Um, I'd love to also di- dive deep into a little bit about how his life may uh, have influenced you as a runner as well.
1: Yeah, so my dad, uh, both my parents immigrated from Ireland in the 80s and met in New York. And my dad was a teacher, but loved running, always ran the New York City Marathon every year, ran the Dublin Marathon prior to moving here. And as children, like he would try to instill that love into us by signing us up for kiddie races, but it never really took So what we'd end up doing is we'd cycle and he would run and that would be the long runs on the weekends. We would get a 10 mile cycle in and he would get a 10 mile run. Best of both worlds. However, um, when he got cancer, the running was supposed to stop. I assumed oncologists would have thought as much going through chemo and all the treatment, the radiation. However, it was so much of who he was, he couldn't give it up. And It came to the point that he had multiple relapses. The tumor started getting larger. He became less of a fast runner. He used to be very um, quick when he was younger and less than three hour marathons. And the goal just became running as a support system for him, something that he could look to in his time of need that was just really for him and I guess almost meditative in nature. So he ran his last marathon the day before his final surgical resection to try to attempt to get some of the tumor. Um, And he ran for Achilles International New York City. He had a very good friend at that point. They had been running together for a few years who was visually impaired. So they did the marathon every year. And there was my dad, like, with metastatic cancer throughout his body, massive tumor in his jaw running the New York City Marathon with his friend for one last hurrah before going to the OR the next day. And it's only now that I've developed such a love with running that I could imagine doing that. I don't know if I would do that. But I think a lot of people can relate to how much solace running can give you in your time of need. Were you
0: aware at that time how extraordinary that was or is that something that maybe you have um maybe you're aware of it and maybe as time has grown and considering your own running has progressed and your time as a medical professional um you know has has started uh that, that you're able to really get it you know put put what he did into into perspective like just what what was that like witnessing that and you know grappling with it over time in terms of just the the audaciousness of that act is it truly really is incredible
1: It was only when I became a medical provider that I realized how extreme that was and how inspiring it was. When I was a child, it was just who dad was. I thought most parents would go out and do that. Running a marathon was not a big deal. But now as I'm older, I'm like that. Running a marathon is always a feat. But when you have cancer and you're about to have surgery, it's just unimaginable to be able to do that.
0: Yeah, I I can't. I can't imagine it. But what did you run? Like it was like a five hours, you know, a five hour marathon. And, and this isn't about fitness. It's just like being on your feet and running for five hours at any pace is a challenge.
1: Absolutely. And running with like for Achilles, you usually have um, like they have like a rope or something tied between the two runners because you're trying to keep pace. With It's all about who you're running with. Like You're doing the New York City Marathon for them. It's a great achievement for yourself, but it's really so someone else can experience it.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. I was actually in the same hotel as I think it was Achilles. There were, if not Achilles, it was a a um an organization that that mirrors it in many ways down um at uh where was it? It said CIM. So the California International Marathon this year I was in the same hotel and I was in the lobby with some of the runners. Um and um some of the able-bodied runners and some of the runners who were who were getting uh some vision assistance. And it was an I apologize really just say if I, I able bodied learners is not the right term. I plead the ignorance on that. But anyway, I want to sip the dichot- not not the economy but the, the people who were there and I was talking with them. And it was it was amazing to see like it was you know talking to one athlete who was and she rowed in college. You know, you went to to BU, so you know how, uh, she was. She basically wrote up um, in Boston at one of those schools. And it's a, it's a huge deal up there. And yeah, I think she she rode at Harvard. And you know that's, that's an a ama- that's a major sport with major accomplishments, and it's it's a huge deal. And you could tell that she's been running with Achilles for a while, helping athletes, and like it meant as much to her that you know that experience as as rowing did in college at like the highest level possible, uh, outside of the Olympics. It was amazing to see how impactful organizations like that are for, for both parties involved.
1: I think it's, it's very rewarding when you do something for yourself, but that feeling isn't usually sustained when you can bring someone else that much joy and that much accomplishment and help them. I think that's more long lasting in my opinion.
0: Mm, that's, a, that's an interesting point. Um, yeah, because I get so funny because it just academically, I could see the opposite. I can imagine thinking the opposite, right? Like in one of them, I'm like striving for a goal that means something to me. And another one, I'm like, I'm helping someone achieve their goal, but it's not my goal. I'm helping, but it's not. This has hasn't been burning inside of me for so long. And yet when you talk to these folks, it's obvious that what you said is, is, is very true, that it is impactful on a level that if someone hasn't done it, they may not be able to completely wrap their head around.
1: Yeah. I'm, I think it's just what human nature is or who we are. Like at the end of the day, we're good people and we want to do good. It's just, we don't always have the opportunity or make it a priority.
0: Right. I know my, my friend and fellow podcaster, Tina Muir does the same sort of thing and she loves it intensely. and uh, has posted about it and talked about it in her podcast so many times. Um, so let's talk about you some more. So you obviously have set this up right so you're in um you're in the ICU as Sloan Kettering. this is a as as you laid out and um we probably didn't even do adjust this but an extremely demanding job right this is incredibly demanding not just physically which certainly it is but mentally and emotionally as well so when you think about you're running, which is considerable. You've run over 30 marathons. You have some huge challenges coming up, which we're going to talk about. I can't wait to discuss. What purposes does running serve for you?
1: It is definitely an outlet. Um, I would say it's almost like a reset start of every day running to work because that's how I get my commute in. I live 10 miles from the hospital, so I'll lease up with my backpack, run the 10 miles and shower at work before I start my shift at 7 a.m. or 7 p.m. on I'm working nights. And it's just a time that's solely for me. I'm on my feet for an hour and a half, and I just get to reflect on what's going on in my life, what's going on at work. And I don't know. I find it rejuvenating in nature. Um, there's just something spiritual and relaxing about it. It's a free form of therapy, I would describe it.
0: And do you find yourself trying to – there's a range here. Mm-hmm. But maybe distance yourself from what you see day to day, which can be obviously very impactful and at times uplifting and at other times maybe the other end of the spectrum, right? Some very, you know, strong emotions on, on, on either end of the spectrum, right? As you see someone get over a cancer or you see someone who has succumbed to it. Um, so you know, in terms of like either embracing the day and resetting, and or potentially being like, okay, this is I just need to get this out of my head and maybe enter a different kind of headspace.
1: Uh, Both, because I think you need to find that balance. Um, For example, if I know I'm going into work and we are going to compassionately extubate someone, which means that someone's terminally ill and there's no further treatments um, and that you just withdraw ventilatory support when they're with their loved ones, we make it as peaceful as possible. There's the level of preparation that you need for that. um, Just to what am I going to say to this family? How can I best support them? And also reflecting on the sense of loss that you have, too. Um, sometimes we don't get to personally know these patients, but other times we do develop relationships with them over a course of years because it's a very small-knit community in the pediatric population at Sloan Kettering. And it's a time just to work through those feelings so that I'm prepared and able to fully give myself to the family and not need to, not need, I don't want to say to think about it when I'm going through it, but that I'm adequately prepared. Um, and then other times it's a distraction. It's like, I want to listen to my music. I just need to get out of my own head for a bit and try to find the joys and running fast and running up this hill and looking at what's around me. So it's a weird balance of those two.
0: I can imagine. What kind of connection do you look to try to foster between yourself, the patients, and the families on an emotional level? Because obviously you want to give the best care you can. You want to be supportive. Um, but at the same time, you also, you're a professional and you have a lot of patients and, you know, you have to you know, keep doing this work. And, you can't, and uh, I can imagine it would be potentially tricky to manage just the emotional and connection side of things.
1: Um, so realistically, you don't make emotional connection with every family, just like you don't make emotional connection with every single person that comes in and out of your life. It's finding that balance is empathy is always number one um, when you're treating the patient because we look at the patient, the family as one unit. Yes, I'm treating the child, but I'm also treating the parents because they have to be very understanding of what they're going through. However, at the end of the day. It's very clinical in nature when and a patient is acutely deteriorating. like That is my focus. I'm looking at patients as a whole, I guess, multi-systems as a whole body and incorporating what could be going on and going down my multiple diagnosis list being like, okay, so they're going to respiratory failure. What initiated this? Are they septic? Um, did they develop a pleural effusion? Is there a pneumothorax? And it's very clinical in nature, and you have to maintain some sort of professionalism at a level of clinical thinking in order to treat a patient in that acute time period. It's only after you stabilize the patient and then you sit down with the family and you're talking to them and explaining what happened that you're also reflecting on, like, this is their three year old daughter. Like, they came here from, I'm just going to pick a country, Israel. And they don't have a support system and they're going through the worst experience of their lives. That's sometimes when you develop that relationship. But in the moments when you're trying to resuscitate a patient, it's all adrenaline, hit the ground running, and you're looking at that patient just to bring them back to their best functionality that you can.
0: I'll, and. Thank you for allowing us to talk like this because we we will bring it back to running, but I think there's this, this arc that we can create here. Uh, Not create, but we we can, we can, we can discuss. Um, Obviously you mentioned that you're being clinical. You're trying to go down, like this is happening. So these are the potential options and you're trying to approach it in a rational way. Um, We, anyone who's, anyone who's alive has, has heard about and has digested on some level, um, just the connection between, you know, the mind and body and all of that stuff and how our attitude can affect things. And, you know, what the power of optimism, in certain places, whether that's true or a placebo effect or anything like that, what's been your relationship to just mindset and things of that nature in terms of approach here, not just from, from you necessarily, but from, you know, the families and the patients in terms of, you know, the kind of mindsets that um, potentially set people up for um, better outcomes and maybe even the reverse, or maybe there isn't any, anything there in terms of your experiences.
1: Um, I like making human connections and I think that's very helpful in any job, um, particularly in a job that's high stress where parents are in a lot of stress. So I just... When I'm having these conversations, I try to reflect where they're coming from. At the end of the day, I'd say i myself. I am honest. I'm not trying to put on this level of um, I'm the experienced clinician here and I'm the expert and I know much more than you know. It's like, no, this is what's going on with your child. You actually know your child way more than I do. I can tell you what's going on from a medical standpoint, but say, for talking about sedation, like your child's had cancer for a few years now, what has worked in the past for your child? And at the end of the day, we're a team. And taking on that outlook makes your job much easier because parents appreciate it, and you're giving better care as a result.
0: Right. So you are in a situation, because of the life and death nature of the experience for the people involved, um, that that you're in a situation to potentially learn life lessons that a lot of people aren't, just the nature of your work. So have there been things that you've taken from these experiences that have impacted your life in terms of how you want to live your life or motivations you have or inspirations that you have? Or are you the other way, like how I don't want to live my life because of X, Y, Z, in terms of not just your professional professional life, but just generally how Deirdre Keen wants to be a human on Earth?
1: (laughs) Wow. It's a great question Matt. Um it it does give you perspective. When you see a lot of death, you realize how short life can be, how terrible life can be, but also how beautiful it can be and to take advantage of all the wonderful opportunities. Um, and that's the way I try to live my life and I'm trying to when I jump at opportunities, I think that I'm here for a reason. I need to take advantage. I need to live for those who can't. But that being said, I also had to find a nice balance because it's okay to be upset about little things. Like I can be upset that I lost my AirPods. I can be upset that a guy and I broke, broke up or that I got into a little fight with a friend. That's okay. Just because you work in life and death does not mean that you need to maintain that perspective at all times. And it took me a while to realize that because I would beat myself up for being upset over little things that we all get upset about, but we're human and that's okay.
0: Yeah, I can I can see exactly how that journey would happen and the, the struggles that come along with it. Um, it can be a tricky a tricky thing to manage, that's for sure. Running is a major part of your life. you're running to work, you're running 10 miles, that is a a serious commitment. So beyond just the health of it, the... Um the not just physical health, but the mental health that, that, that this that comes with it, as you mentioned earlier, what about running? Uh, or what about your fondness for running makes you want to have it become such a major part of your life, as opposed to just like a passing thing that you do a couple times a week?
1: Yeah, it's strange. And I don't think anything was intentional about making running such a major player in my life. It sort of just happened itself. Um, at first I started for health reasons. I wanted fitness and then I wanted to run one marathon in memory of my dad, um, just as a way to connect with him after he'd passed. And I did that. And I was like, wow, I I love this. I want to keep doing this. So I started looking at different marathons and originally it was always for him. I was running these races for him and, it was something that I could take refuge in and like, he'd be proud of this and he would love to see me doing this. But after a year or two, I started realizing like, this is my thing now too. It's not just my dad's. And this is something that I will always have to turn to during time, tough times, during good times, um, way to see the world and just a way to challenge myself. So I think it happened naturally, but looking back at the last 10 years, it is crazy how much running has become like who I am and my identity.
0: Yeah, I mean most people don't complete over 30 marathons in their life. <laughs> if they lived a full like a 100-year life. This is this is a lot of running.
1: Yeah, I don't know how it happened, but here I am.
0: Here you are. All right, so let's talk about 2022 and some of the goals that you have. All right, so first of all, I want you to list some of them because you, 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 you know, we, we've been you know talking over email and stuff, and they're they are really inspiring, and then we can get into some of the motivations behind them because they are all they're all awesome, frankly.
1: So what I'm currently doing is I'm doing a marathon a month, and this started last October with the Boston Marathon, and um, it really. That's not the real goal here. The real goal is to increase my training for a competition that's coming up next October. And it's called the World Marathon Challenge. So essentially, it is seven marathons on the seven continents in seven consecutive days. Um, the challenge came about from a runner who's quite famous in the distance Space called Richard Donovan. And he started in 2015 after he initially was the first person to ever do this via commercial flights. So he started this for between 30, 40 runners, um, a lot of pro athletes, and then some amateurs like myself with the, their One Life bucket list and got a chartered plane and has been doing it since with a recess, obviously, last year with the pandemic. And it's back now this October, um, starting October 25th in Antarctica. And from Antarctica, we go to Cape Town, South Africa, which is the African marathon. And then we go to Perth for Australia, uh, followed by Dubai for Asia. And then we head to Madrid for Europe before going to Brazil. And we end in Miami. And this is all done in 186 hours. Um, it's... It's going to be interesting. Uh, I have obviously not run seven marathons seven days in a row and also taken into account traveling. But I think it's going to be one of those lifetime experiences that you never forget.
0: Well, that's for sure. If you forget (laughs) it, then something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. (laughs) Right. So what is the – obviously, with the the logistics of this being – seemingly equally as difficult as the physical challenge um here uh so what is the process that someone can even get involved in this right this seems like it would be um um obviously some sort of application process you can't just like hop on this dude's plane so what what did you have to do to to be part of this
1: (laughs) um so i first found out about this race in 20 gosh 2018 i think tom brady had posted about it on his instagram because a woman from boston um Becca Pizzo, I think her name is, came in first place female. And my brother's best friend saw it and he sent it to my brother and he was like, Deirdre would love this, I think. And he sent it to me. And I just added that, like, that's on my mental life list of I'm going to do this at some point in time. And since then, I've done a lot of research. And last year was very challenging for me. Um, And as a result, I wanted to do something, do something for myself do something for society. And I thought there's no time like the present. So I reached out to the race director, Richard, and told him about my extensive running history. So we will all meet end of October in Cape Town. And then from there, we fly to Antarctica. Um, he charters a jet for the week. We land, they make a track around the planes, about like eight kilometers, um, think the thought process is that we don't get lost in Antarctica. And we finish that. And when everyone finishes, we get back on the plane and fly to Cape Town for the next marathon. Wild
0: stuff, man. That is for sure. But not only that, not only do you have these crazy distance goals, right? Obviously, you have to be in some serious shape, not only to to do seven marathons seven days, but also to be fit enough to recover, considering that this is, are going to be suboptimal recovery conditions. Um, you know, we talked to... You know, Nikki Cannon last month, who's doing forty who did forty marathons in forty days, with the last one being the Houston Marathon and was teaching at the same time and was like, you know, it was a wild situation. As as hard as that was, it's obviously had it's provided its own challenges with it's like, hey, now we're in the plane. Are we hopefully you can sleep on the plane? Cause if you can't, this is gonna be some <laughs> this is gonna be a lot of trouble.
1: I'm hoping that I get to the point that you're exhausted enough that you can sleep anywhere. Um, but it is a nice plane where the chairs recline. Um I I was gifted some Norma Tech boots, so I'm looking forward to just sleeping in them <laughs> and <laughs> optimizing them for recovery.
0: Oh my gosh, I can imagine, that's for sure. But you have some time goals this year. This isn't just about like, all right, I need to be be, be pounding the pavement to to build up the strength.
1: I know, I'm, I'm all or nothing apparently. Well, I always knew that. Um, I would love to do a sub three-hour marathon and that is the goal, but I'm not going to, push myself to achieve that necessarily this year um, i'm making some progress i left off at the start of the pandemic uh, new york city marathon 2019 at 314 and then when i came back to boston um, last october i was down to 312 and most recently i was in dallas at 308 so i'm ticking off the minute yeah yeah, getting yeah.
0: There. all right so what what are some of the races that you're going to be doing over the next what seven months or so, um, not only in preparation for your big challenge, but also you know trying to to knock out another goal along the way.
1: So I have an ultra marathon um, in two weeks, yeah, and so the or now it's a week and a half. It's in New Jersey. it's called the Feb Apple Frozen 50. It's five loops of a ten mile trail, so it'll be fifty miles. Um, and that's just more to increase my distance. Following that, in March, I have the L.A. Marathon. Um, April will be Boston again. And then May will be Providence. Um,
0: go Providence! first.
1: I know, that's up <laughs> by you. And in June, I'm thinking the Grandma's Marathon in Minnesota. But I'm kind of like playing it up. I'll leave it up to ear and just seeing what comes up and what works in my schedule, right? Because I still have to work and go to school. <laughs>
0: And we should say, I know people can hear that in the background. That is Deirdre's awesome dog. Who, you know, yes,
1: do- dogs are going to be
0: dogs, man. That's the way it goes.
1: I have an Italian greyhound. She is one. She is actually a great runner. Uh, during the summer, she'll get up to 10 miles with me.
0: That is awesome. Yeah, I had this, our, our our husky is 15 now, so he's not doing this anymore. But I, he used to run with me all the time as well, which is really fun. You know, it got to the point where like, if I didn't take him for a run, he was like, what the hell, man?
1: Yeah, What's like you're leaving me at home. I see you putting your sneakers on.
0: Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You have to like sneak sneak out of the house to to make it happen. Um, well, I wonder if like the grandma's marathon might. Obviously, it's a a it's known to be a faster course for for many, right? And then, um, you know, mid June, mid to late June in Minnesota, temperatures could be right where you want them. And then, especially if you're doing Providence, that's May first. So all of a sudden, you have a potential six or seven week window there to really dial it in.
1: And then, so I also have a coach, which is a massive asset. And I didn't really realize that I needed a coach, but I was talking to a previous participant who did the world marathon challenge. And he's like, no, you just need someone like to strategize how you're going to make your workouts, how you're going to increase speed. Because if you don't have that level of experience, you're just going to be making it up as you go. And I'm so glad I have her because I thought I was just going to run, a half marathon every day and eventually start running twenty miles every day and be good to go. But that's not realistic. <laughs> well let's give her some let's give her a shout out here. Who's your coach? <laughs> yeah, Leslie Nibbs. She is from DC. She is an Ironman um champion. And her daughter was just in the Olympics this summer representing US for a triathlon. There you go. She's the youngest ever American triathlete.
0: That is awesome. And actually and I, I brought I was queuing this up on my phone. I know you saw me like fiddling with my phone a couple of minutes ago. We actually had it was episode one fifty one. We had Eric Tozer on the pod. It was after he did this, so he did the same challenge that you're doing, and so the seven marathons and seven days and seven continents is episode one fifty one. And Eric also is a type one diabetic, so that was like wow. The, the, that was like the hard, obviously, it's hard challenge for everybody. But you know that that, that provided that dope, a level yeah. of complexity into the uh, into the uh, the scenario.
1: I'm so excited to go back and um, listen to it, and also terrified.
0: <laughs> well, as I tell everyone, if you're going past, if you're going back past like a year and a half with this pod, you're probably going to hear some some worse audio. We have a really good, really good producer now. Shout out to my man Dave at over at InPost Media. Um, but it's no, all about Eric, Eric is fantastic. <laughs> yeah as long as we have a minimum you have a minimum, as as have a minimum <laughs> level of professionalism and audio quality. Um, yeah that was yeah he, he, it was a really interesting story and Eric was an awesome guy. Um, you know, he prepared for it just like you would expect someone who was really serious about something like this would prepare for it. And um, I remember the, the big thing for him afterwards and you shouldn't prepare for this eventuality, but ultimately he didn't he had like visions of it being incredibly difficult. Like, that he was going to be really on the edge of it. Um, but he said that just the, adre- the adrenaline of the whole experience, like, it really, like, pushed him through and he, you know, um, you know, it, it didn't end up being as hard as he thought it might be just because I think it was just this whole whirlwind of a week. And I imagine you probably get like, like a post-trip flu type thing. Your immune system's like finally like, oh, I can relax. But it, it, he, he brought it up like, hey, this was hard. It was challenging, but also it didn't, it didn't crush me. And, and I really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah. Like I'm, I am do not lie. I stay awake some nights thinking, what am I doing? Like, who do I think I am? Seven marathons in seven days and traveling around the world. It's not realistic. Especially when you have a full-time job and have many other responsibilities. But a lot of things you just they work out. You put the work in and somehow you find yourself towing the start line in Antarctica. And I'm hoping that I have a similar experience to Eric where I'm like the adrenaline kept me going. And then I was in bed for a week before I ran the New York City marathon. <laughs>
0: There you go. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God. I can't believe you're running New York after that. What's the New York city marathon like as a New Yorker? Cause we, every, we hear all the time about, about the experience of it and that it's New York and Boston. There's nothing like it. They're very different, but you get that same sort of feel you've run both. Um, what, what is it not only in terms of just the experience, but it being your hometown race?
1: Yeah, frankly, it is emotional. Um, I love the New York City Marathon. I just love the energy of getting to Staten Island. As we know, the running community is one of the kindest communities around, so supportive. It's always a great time taking the ferry and on the bus. And then you get there and you get to experience this, your own city on your own two feet, like no one else typically does. And my favorite part is running over the Queensboro Bridge. Um, it's completely silent, it's a hilly bridge. A mile long, bit of a struggle, and then you start hearing the crowds, the echo of the crowds on First Avenue. And as I always pause my music, and as you get closer, just the intensity of the sound, and then you're just feeling your feet, hearing your feet, and then you approach First Avenue, and you come down, and it is a whirlwind of thousands of people screaming, a screaming tunnel it always makes me emotional and it gives me the chills and it carries me up first until I hit the Bronx. And hitting the Bronx is always the hardest part for me, even though I'm from the Bronx. However, my running club is there and they kind of get me through the last six miles until I hit Central Park and cross that finish line.
0: Yeah, we had John Ranieri on the pod talking about the the New York City Marathon and he's an elite runner and he's fished top, top 10 American in the race. And and he likes to tell, not only remind himself, but tell some of his athletes, he coaches with McCurdy Trained, as do I, um, about like, you need to be careful when you get off that bridge. Because, yes. because mm-hmm. it's going to be a, an experience that you will never forget. It's unbelievable. Your adrenaline is you're, it's never going to be higher. You're going to want to just like rip through a wall. But you have a lot of race left and you can't be doing that.
1: Yeah, and it gets like as you hit Harlem and hit the Bronx, there's still incredible spectators, but it's not the same intensity. So you kind of need to pocket some of that energy to bring out later on for the last five miles. where
0: right, you get like almost like the, you almost get like the finish line feeling, but you're nowhere near the finish you're line. You're nowhere you have near to... <laughs> the
1: finish line. You still have to hit the Bronx and come down Fifth Avenue, and Fifth Avenue is beautiful, but I always find Central Park struggle. And I'm usually like muttering to myself how much I hate marathons. I I don't know why, but it's hilly, it's hard, and you're just, why is the finish line another three miles away? But you get there.
0: Right, right. There you go. All right. Let's talk about what you're, because you're doing this incredible challenge. Seven marathons, seven continents, seven days is a remarkable experience. You can't wait to do it. But you're not simply doing it for your own enjoyment, or if you want to call it enjoyment. Um <laughs> your own your own goals. There's more to the story. Um tell us uh the other reason why you're doing this and who you're doing it for.
1: Yeah. So um as I kind of touched on earlier, I had a very rough time 2021. I think as the height of the pandemic, like it started to subside, I got to reflect on the terrible things I saw on the terrible things that happened in the healthcare system during that time. And at that time, my brother was in an accident where he was the sole survivor and had a long recovery time. And I went through a breakup and just everything was falling apart at once or it felt that way. Uh, My mental health really took a hit. And it was the first time that I truly struggled with depression. Um, It was horrible. It took a few months for me to finally try to get out of that hole. Uh, but running was such a refuge at that time. It was the only thing I kept consistent. It's such a great support system. So I gave myself grace and I worked through that and I did get out of that funk and that hole and got appropriate help, but it definitely, it changed me. Um, It gave me such empathy for those who are struggling, who are still struggling and need that additional support and had (laughs) me thinking about people who don't have access to it. So I started looking for nonprofits um, that not only do research on mental health, but actually have resources in place for people that need it that have programs for depression, that offer free counseling. And I came across Vibrant Emotional Health, which is a nonprofit in New York City. And not only do they offer all those resources, but they actually run the National Suicide Hotline. Um, they also run a National Physician's assistant Hotline for physicians who are really suffering through the pandemic and need someone to talk to in an emergency in the middle of the night. Uh, that is completely anonymous and can get the support they need in order to give support to their patients. So I started researching them and seeing the work they do. And I was just I don't know, I was very much moved. So I will be running the World Marathon challenge and fundraising for them.
0: All right. Well, I encourage everyone to get involved if they can. Where can they go um, to be part of that? And we'll make sure that's included in the show notes as well.
1: Yeah, so it's called Vibrant uh, Emotional Health, or if you go to tinyurl.com um, forward slash DK4 Vibrant, I'm um, we'll, sure we'll post the link with the pod, but we'd appreciate it. Um, and my biggest thing was that the money actually goes to help people. Like I wanted to see a difference. Um, a lot of times you donate to these big organizations and you have no idea how your money's helping but they actually tell you the programs they're implementing.
0: Well, you are doing so many amazing things, both with running shoes on and and in your day job. And um, thank you for helping make the world a better place in a very serious way. Dear Drakeen, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you, Matt. It was a pleasure.
0: So I told you in the intro, this one was special. And I think you don't now you now you understand why. I mean, my goodness, dear Drakeen. What a force of nature. How can you not root for a woman like this? Also, like like we mentioned in the show, check out the show notes, how to support her in her journey as she does the seven and seven. Uh, Just a remarkable thing. I should say seven and seven and seven, right? Seven marathons, seven continents, seven days. Just awesome. Just so awesome. I know I'll be donating and I call everyone else if you can to do the same thing because it's going to a good cause. And she obviously is doing remarkable things in all areas of her life. So thank you so much for listening. It is so greatly appreciated and have a great day. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to MetaP P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest estates these days. Just representation of storm brewing. Amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.